Thank you. That's grand. Lovely. Well, folks, good morning to you all. Boys, that's tar all the yellow high. Good morning to you all. That's good. Now, maybe you'll turn around and say hello to somebody. That would be, maybe that's not your traditional thing, but we're a new year. Just turn around and say hello to somebody in church this morning. Just turn around and speak to them and don't be afraid to say hello. That's good. I'm telling you. No, we have nothing to be afraid of in the house of God, you know, and especially not the people of God. We ought not to be afraid of one another to speak or to smile at each other. But it's lovely to be with you on this first Sunday of a new year. Uh, we're turning this today in First Kings and chapter 18. First Kings and chapter 18, and we're going to read together from verse 19 of this portion of Scripture. We'll read a few verses together, and uh, I'm going to reminisce a little bit, just for a moment or two as part of an introduction, uh, which I hope will not be too much for you, and then, uh, and then we're just going to get straight into what we have to share, uh, just a few thoughts around the Word of God, and uh, it's as I really intimated it's lovely to be with you here today. Verse 19, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel. Now this was Elijah was speaking here. And the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at the Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, I'm just going to interrupt there a wee moment and say to you, for some reason, Elijah was very, maybe, maybe because of his activity and his service for God, maybe he felt in some ways sort of quite exclusive in this work. But little did he realize, if you go on into the following chapter, in chapter 19 and verse 18, you'll see that there were yet... 7,000 that had neither bowed the knee nor kissed the, the prophet Baal. So Elijah was not on his own. And sometimes we can have this idea about ourselves because of our service to God that we're sort of like exclusive. There's nobody doing a job just quite as good as we are. But really we've got to remember God's work does not lack God's supply of people. And God's work continues and God has his witnesses in all places. So lest we think ourselves or lest we be puffed up with pride thinking there's nobody quite like me. We need to remember we're just a small cog in a big wheel. A very small cog in a big wheel. God might be pleased to use me and God might be pleased to use you. But bear in mind his work will continue even without you. Because we are not exclusive and we are not in some ways thinking that we are better than other people. And the most beautiful illustration, if you ever have the privilege of looking at an old clock long before digital come into place, it has got many cogs and each cog are vitally important. And you're important in the work of God here in St. Field Baptist. You're important in the work of God. You're part of the cog. And if you're not part of the cog and you don't want to be part of the cog, the reality is what often will happen in God's work is if you're not willing to get your hand into the, into the plow, then what sometimes happens in God's work is God replaces you. God replaces you with somebody who will do the work. But he wants to use you in this place. But he's not going to use you if you're not here. Tell me, are you, are you a faithful witness for God in this place? Can Sinfield Baptist, the work of God, see that you're someday 
that the fellowship can rely upon or you hitting us. Let me break on into the chapter, verse 22. Then said Elijah, well, verse 23, that let them therefore choose us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it in wood and put, the, uh, put no fire under it and I will press the, uh, dress the other bullock and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And call ye upon the name of your gods, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him, let him be God. And all the people answered him and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, and put no fire under it. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar and which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves with, uh, after their manner with knives and lances uh, till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when the midday was past that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice and there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took the twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar with uh, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels of water and pour it upon on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And, and, he, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water, water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and, and that I am thy, thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that, there art, that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of God, the Lord, fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the, wa the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, the God, the Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And he took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon, and there, 
and slew them there. And we'll end our reading there at verse 40. And we trust that the Lord will bless his word to our hearts. Let's just have a short word of prayer just before we turn for a few moments around God's word. Our Father, this morning, we thank thee for reminding us, even through our hymns that we've been singing, that have very much been focusing upon one who redeems, one who saves, one who delivers. And Lord, we acknowledge as your people that we are not this, by any means, a perfect people. We acknowledge, Lord, that we fall far short of your glory. We acknowledge this morning, Lord, that we need you every day because sadly we we sin against you and we even sin against others. And we ask today, even this morning, that you would forgive us and Lord, you would help us to be a better people, a, a more godly people, even this incoming year. We cannot do it without you and we need your help, Lord. And whether it be as we stand behind the pulpit or, or sit in front of it, we acknowledge today, Lord, that we need you today. And we ask, Lord, even this time in your presence, and then a little later as we sit around your table, grant, Lord, that we may just know you drawing near to us as you drew near to those on the Mass Road. And Father, today we would long that your word would burn in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last year, September time roughly, I had the great honor and privilege of traveling to a place I never thought I would ever have went to. I never set out to ever plan to go on. But this trip was arranged for a place called the Holy Land. I joined a couple that were on that trip, Adrian and Ruth, and a number of other people. In fact, there were 51 or 52 in total. And now over that was journey of those number of days, and I'm going to say to you, if you've ever had the privilege or ever had the opportunity to go to that land, I know it's not... It wouldn't be the place you'd be going to today, but in the future, if the opportunity ever arises to go to that land, I would, I would encourage you by all means to get to it. It's very insightful, it's very enlightening, and it helps you to understand things a little bit different whenever you open the Scriptures, and it helps you to understand them better for you personally, for me personally as well. So my wife would encourage me to go, and so off I went on my own and joined everybody else. My wife was working, so she wasn't able to make it... Uh, you, some of you might think I'm very sore on my wife this morning, but be assured I'm not that sore. I try my best to look after her. I do, I promise you that. But when we were there, we went to this place called Mount Carmel. It's not anything significant. It's not anything that stands out by any means. It's not anything that's, that's really uh, magnificent in beauty or anything. In fact, it's quite a barren place. In fact, if you go today, you see this massive statue, and then a statue made in the image what's meant to be of this man called Elijah, the man who called the fire down from heaven. As you go to the wee area just off to the right of it, you'll see like a wee place, like I'm there I'm going to call a type of a wee brick uh, stone walk garden way where you can go in and you can sit and there's a wee area where you can stand you can speak at and then just over the side, look down over and you see this massive valley, uh, like I'm going to call it a valley, a massive flat plain and it's extremely barren. Now let's try and move back in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 18, you can be assured that whenever Elijah stood there there was no green grass. There's no sense of prosperity or no sense of whereby everything was lush and, thing because, uh, lush and, the, and, and trees growing and so forth because there had been three years of, of famine, three years where there has been no rain upon the land. What does that bring? Well, you know as well as I do, too much, too much rain is not a great thing, but no rain is an even worse thing. Because the reality is then nothing can grow. You can have no harvest, you can have no crops, you can either have food for people or there's a shortage of food for people and a shortage of fodder for animals. 
And so in return, yet the reality was that even in the midst of this long span whereby this man who had prayed in the rain and stopped, now this is how effective one man's prayers can be. Now we'll maybe make reference to that later on, but I'm going to say to you, to us, to us this morning, but especially to those of us who are men, to those of us who are men, where are our praying men today? Where are praying men? We have many praying women. And some of our wives would, dare I say it, would put us to great shame. But us as men, who are meant to be leading our homes, leading our houses, leading our families, where are the men? The godly men that they read about in the New Testament. When we rush to church, when the, the last thing in our mind is maybe spending time in the presence of God, let me very quickly move on because I don't want to harbor too much upon that point. But I'm going to say to you very simply, this man was the man who prayed the fire or prayed that the rain would stop and it stopped. There was this three years. And then lo and behold, Israel had, whatever, whatever has happened in their lives, they have got distracted from the main goal, and that was following the Jehovah Yahweh. They'd forgotten about who God was, and they'd forgotten about where God had brought them from, and they'd forgotten where God was taking them to. And whenever you get here to verse 21, Elijah calls not just all of Israel, but the prophets of, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove uh, to, toward this mountain, and he challenges the people of Israel. And I'm going to give you four simple wee points in just about 20, roughly about 20 minutes for it's a quarter past 12. The first, challenge, the first wee point I just want to leave with you this morning, if you were to stand in that place that day when Elijah stood there, it was the place where Israel had to make a choice or were called to make a choice. Because up to then they were an indecisive people. Indecisive people. Now, despite their history... Despite all that God, how God had blessed them and how God had brought them out of the house of bondage, a place of Israel, because that's what Egypt meant, was a house of bondage. Despite the fact that God had brought them out of this place, brought them through the Red Sea, delivered them from Pharaoh's army, provided for them in the desert and the wilderness, given them water through whenever Moses struck the rock. Well, it was the manna in the daytime. Well, he gave them a pair of shoes that for 40 years they never had to change because they never wore out. So despite all that God has done for them, Elijah brings them to this mountain at Mount Carmel, and this is what he says to them. How long halt ye between two opinions? If Baal follow him, but if God follow him, and the Bible says these words, and the people answered him, not a word. And all this crowd of people now, there could have been anything up to two million people of Israel that day because they reckon there's got some one to two million that left Israel way back in, in, in Pharaoh and from Pharaoh in Egypt and in, in Egypt. And so the, the nation is growing. And yet, despite all these people, there wasn't one of them could say, Hold on a minute here, I follow the Lord. Not one of them. At this particular point. They're all silent. You know, I looked up that word indecisive. 
And really what it means is it means to halt, or to halt it means to, uh, between two opinions. It does not mean to stop and to think over something. This old commentator by the name of a man called Wilson, he writes in his Old Testament word stories, he says, this is a person or a people who never make up their mind to what position or attitude or action they're going to take. One day they lean one direction, and another day they lean the next, the opposite direction. See, up to this point, Israel had become indecisive, both double-sided, played both sides of the road, as it were, type of people. They were neither sold out to Baal, but they were neither loyal to Jehovah. And then I thought to myself, surely whenever I move then into the New Testament, I come to a church, what is known as the seven churches in Israel, and, and they have seven churches in the book of Revelation, and one of those churches is called the Laodicean church. Now, theologians, men that are far better studied than I am, and far more intelligent than I am for that benefit, I'm going to say to you, they believe that these different churches represent different ages, different periods of time within church history. And theologians will tell you today that they believe that the age that we presently live in is known as the Laodicean age. What is that Laodicean age? They were a people who were lukewarm. They were indecisive. They were neither committed to one particular cause wholeheartedly. They were half-hearted in all that they did and all that they followed. And then I thought to myself, folks, this morning, as we sit in the house of God at the beginning of 2024, maybe we take a moment, or maybe during this period from you move from 2023 into 2024, maybe you've been looking back over your life and you've been asking yourself, even as a believer, how really am I doing? Spiritually, how really am I doing? Maybe this morning you're in this house of God and this word is for you today because you have been very indecisive. You have been halting between two opinions. The work of God is something that's optional for you. You come as it suits you, if it suits you, when it suits you. And surely, folks, as we go into 2024, does God not require more of us? Is his work not important to us? Is his word not important to us? Is his service not important to us? But for this people, they were brought to a challenge, or brought to this place whereby God was challenging them through Elijah and saying, listen, you have a choice today you need to make. A choice today. Maybe as you sit in the house of God this morning, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. I'm going to say to you, you have a choice and you will make a choice today. You make a choice. In fact, every Sunday you come, every time you come under the preaching of the word, and every time, up to now, if you're not a Christian, the choice that you have made, you've said, no, I'm going my way. Well, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, says, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. But be assured, dear friend, 
that your way without Christ is the way of death. But today God challenges you and he asks you to consider Christ. And choose Christ day because it's the way of life. And sure, there's no better time and there's no better day than this day. Because the scripture says, today if you hear my voice, harden not your hearts. But remember, primarily this message was written to Israel, the people of God. Maybe you have professed in 2023, 2022, or even longer, further back, but sadly for a period of time now, your heart has become lukewarm. And you know it. Maybe nobody else knows it, but you know it. God says today, it's the day you need to make a choice. You can't keep going on this way. You can't keep going on. I'm going to say to you, secondly, not just was this place a place where Israel had to make a choice, but this place was a place where the altar had to be rebuilt. Now, you'll read about that there in verse 30. Verse 30, it says these words. It says, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. There's nothing wrong with that. Like. So he was inviting them, drawing them near. And then he says, And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar that had been of the Lord that was broken down. So realize, now the altar was important for a number of reasons, folks, in the Old Testament. The altar was the place where they made sacrifices. The altar was the place where they worshipped God. The altar was the place where they offered prayers. The altar was the place where they, they drew near to the presence of God. They specifically took time to be with God. But what had happened to the altar? It had become neglected. So much so that we're told here that he had to rebuild the altar. So, because it would have been rebuilt, that would tell me that over time it has just fallen away. It has been neglected. It has been forsaken. The people have chosen to do other things with those precious special moments that they should have taken to be alone with God, but instead they chose them to be with someone else or at something else. And then I'm going to say to myself this morning, I'm going to this altar also we're told that he was to take uh, 12 stones, those 12 stones, uh, you'll read about that, I think it's in, uh, uh, that he took 12 stones from the, the ground and the stones which he built on the altar uh, were 12 in total and each stone represented one of the sons of Jacob, which were the tribes of Israel. And I thought about those 12 stones, and I realized that each stone was, each stone was represented a tribe. And the tribes of Israel, even though they had neglected God, they were still precious to God. Because if you go back in time, you'll read that whenever the high priest would have went into the holies of holies, he whenever, always, every time when he went in before the holies of holies, there was a number of things that he always did. Number one was he had two stones, and upon each stone was engraven six names of the tribes of Israel on one stone and six on the other stone. 
So what you find is that each stone was laid upon one shoulder and the other on this shoulder. So what does it tell us? That when he went in, he went in bearing the names of the tribes of Israel and all their people groups, all their peoples, before God in prayer. Now, I think this is a great privilege that you and I have this morning as the people of God. Even though for some of us we have neglected prayer in our lives, yet the wonderful thing is that that He prays for us. He prays for us. He is not only our mediator, but He is also our interceder. And He prays on our behalf. You also find that that priest would have had a plate on on that plate, they had 12 stones, and each stone was a precious stone, and each stone represented the children of Israel. So what we also then, what you find is that, the, that when the priest went in and he brought this, this item across his front, there's a, a, a proper title for it, a proper name for it, but it has amissed me. It, I'm amiss of that name now, but as irrelevant of what it's called, the fact was that these stones were close to the priest's heart. And so whenever we live in a world where people think and where people are so much feel, dare I say, engulfed by thinking that they're of no worth and that people are of no value and, uh, and they think that they're, they're, they're terribly insecure, you've got to remember, just as those 12 gems were close to God's heart, my dear friend, you and I are close to the heart of God. He cares for us. And you know how I know He cares? See this table here. This is a demonstration of His care for me. His love for me. But the thing that I also caught to my mind whenever I was thought of this wee portion of Scripture is that they had to rebuild the altar because the people had neglected the altar. The altar was significant in Bible times of three, what some preachers called the three R's, a place of remembrance, a place of rejoicing, and a place of request. Place of remembrance, because when they built the altar, the altar was there to remind them of where God had, where God had brought them. You know, there are people, and they come to me in the past, and not presently, but in the past, there are folks who come to me and say, whenever I come to God in prayer, I don't know how to pray or what to pray or what way should I pray. And, and I'm reminded of the old saying that, some old theologian of a past day, I read somewhere in a book, the little book of Acts, A-C-T-S. A is for adoration, C is for confession, T is for thanksgiving, and S is for supplication. A way that can help us to instruct us in our praying. When we come to God, it's not all about my requests and my needs. It's first and foremost about adoration, whereby I am adoring the one who has redeemed me. Seeing that I am confessing my sins to God, confessing my failures to God because there's none of us here today uh, that, that have gone through this past week and have not sinned. So we come in confession and then we come in thanksgiving. And people say, well, what have you got to be thankful for? Well, folks, we have an awful lot to be thankful for. We have got temporal blessings. We have a roof over our head. We have clo- we've got clothes on our back. We have got uh, clothes in the cupboard. We have got shoes on our feet. We have got a motor to drive about in. We have a job. We have all these things. And I know they're only temporal. And one day we're going to leave the whole thing all behind. That's why I it. But the most important thing that the people of God have to be thankful for is the fact that we have been redeemed. That we are saved now. 
that we are the children of God. That we were once slaves, and we were once in chains, and we were once in a prison, spiritually speaking. But thank God, he whom the Scriptures, or the hymn writer says, who was that great emancipator, now he has come and he has set us free. What have I got to be thankful for? My dear friend, I have everything to be thankful for. And in essence, supplication, my dear friend, I am making prayers for others because this is not just about what I need in prayer. I am endeavoring to pray for others and their needs. Because this life, folks, is not just all about me. And my dear friend, if your life is just all about you, then I'm going to tell you you have an extremely selfish life. This life is not about me. It was a place not just to remember, it was a place of rejoicing because they rejoiced in the fact that despite a time, like Israel had been a rebellious people, a stubborn people, a hard-hearted people, uh, a resistant people, and yet God forgave them and forgave them and forgave them and forgave them again. How many times has he forgiven me? My dear friend, I couldn't dare to start a count. That's the honest truth. What have I got to rejoice in? The forgiveness of God. But it was also a place, dear folks, of requests because it was this place that they made their requests known to God. Let me ask you this morning in the presence of God, has your altar been neglected? Hmm? Has your altar been neglected? This is not for your neighbor beside you or behind you or in front of you. This is just for you as a child of God. Do you take time in the presence of God to sit on His Word? to spend time listening for his voice and seeking his face for not just that he might help you and deliver you from you, but you might be able to pray for others. Maybe in 2024, on this day, like Israel, personally and privately, you need to build your altar. I'm going to also say to you, and and my time is gone, and we're only halfway through, but I'm going to say to you as well, folks, that it's not just a a private altar, a personal altar, but I'm also going to say to you, we ought also have a family altar. I remember as I grew up, and I know this is going out live, and my dad might hear it, and I by no means try to cause any embarrassment or shame to my dad, but it, it was my mother that prayed with us. It was my mother that took time to pray for us. Tell me, men, those of you who have been blessed with children, 
do you pray with your children? Or do you just leave this spiritual job to the wife, the mother of the home? Hmm? Have I always succeeded in this area? I don't have any family. There's just the wife and me. Have I always uh, come out on top in this matter, as it were, of always praying with my wife? To my shame, I haven't always done this. And to my shame, there's been times when my wife has been an awful lot more spiritual than I have been. And that's been failure on my part. So I don't want you to think as I stand here that I'm saying something to you that, that, that I don't struggle with. But I need to make changes in my life, folks. I need to make my priorities. What is my priorities in 2024? Has it merely been successful in my job? Because one day, let me tell you, if you did something wrong, it wouldn't matter how many thousand things, you could be get the sack in the morning and you're at a job and you've pumped all your energy into a job and you're no longer in work. And if that's your, which I hope is not the case, but surely, folks, our energy should not be completely... It's not that we don't give our best to our jobs. But what's going to help us through times of hardship and trials? It's not going to be money. It's not going to be successful careers. I'll tell you what's going to help us through and get us through. It's going to be the presence of God and the word of God because that's where strength is going to come from. That's if we believe the scriptures. Maybe some of you can't pray with your wives because you just don't pray on your own. And then I'm going to say to you, there's what I'm going to call the church holder. I'm calling that simply that's the place where we set aside that evening in the week. Well, it'd be a, for us in Tubermore, it's a Wednesday night. And my wife and I have made it our goal from ever we started going to Tubermore Baptist Church that the Wednesday night, no matter how busy life is, unless I'm away doing a meeting in some other place, or unless we're terribly ill, you'll find us on Wednesday night in no other place. If you want to break into our house, you can be sure if you come between. There you go, you're online now. I'm in Baller now, aren't I? Set the alarm. You come between 10 to 8 and half 9, and unless my dog eats you to death, you can take whatever you want. Because there's only one place we'll be. Now what about you folks? You want to see your church growing? At least I hope you do. How come, folks, the one night of the week, the place we need to be and should be for the better of the work, we're just happy to neglect it? Listen, our time is gone, but I'm just going to bring up a couple of our wee thoughts here just for the sake of it. It's not only a place where where Israel had to make a choice, not only a place where the altar had to be built, but it's also a place where the fire of God fell. 
place where the fire of God fell. This man prayed and the fire of God fell. It says, and then, uh, verse 38, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, lick, uh, and licked up all the, matter, all the water that was in the trench. Now, two wee simple things about this, folks. Number one was, what does fire do? Now, I light a stove. My wife likes a fire, so I have, have to cut sticks. And whenever you have to cut sticks, that means you, you have to buy a chainsaw. And man, I'm telling you, for some men, that's just like the best thing since sliced bread, having your own chainsaw. And this past year, I actually bought another one because I thought one wasn't enough, so I bought another one just to have it to be sure. And I was great, boy. It's great out in the fresh air and cutting away and bringing them home and, uh, and so forth. But let me tell you something. I have come to realize that you can't burn wet sticks. <laughs> you can't do it. I don't care how many fire lighters you put under it. They've got to be dry. What does Elijah do? Elijah teaches a very vital, important lesson is that God always does the impossible. And as we go into 2024, there are many things that for you and in your life and in your family, and your circumstances might seem completely impossible. The impossible. But God works in impossibilities. That's like one of the two strands that run parallel throughout the whole of Scripture from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. One strand is, a, is the color of red, which talks about redemption. You find it in Genesis, and you follow it right through, right through into the, old, in the book of Revelation, and that never leaves because the work is that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And this other strand is the fact that God always works in impossibilities. And I don't have the time to tell you all about that, but if you know your Bible, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, that was in Abraham's day when he had no son, and God promised him an heir. And if you count the sand of the sea, so you'll be able to count all their, your children, your grandchildren, every other child after that. And this goes on now, right throughout Scripture. I want to say something to you that fire, not just does it, uh, it needs to be dry, but what this fire shows is that God does the impossible. I'm going to tell you secondly that that fire, it consumes. Because no matter how many sticks I throw on our stove, I'm constantly filling it. Filling it. Maybe three times a night. Barley sticks. Three times a night. Big stove. And I realize whenever the fire of God, people pray that, oh Lord, that the fire of God might fall on us. Want us the fire of God, not physically, but spiritual sense. But I want to tell you, it's going to consume things. You know what it's going to consume? It's going to consume the dross. It's going to consume the pride. It's going to consume our selfishness. It's going to consume our carnal ways because there's no way that the fire of God can be in our hearts if these attitudes are still in our lives. In the book of Corinthians, in fact, just before I come up this morning, I was just, or just sitting there in the, in the back row there, or down the chair, and Paul writes in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Now, these were the people of God. Right? Just like we're the people of God. And he says, even as unto babes in Christ. So they hadn't actually matured. They were the sort of people that 
If somebody did something wrong, it's like, you know, whenever a wee baby there or a wee young child doesn't get its way, it throws a tantrum. Boys, I remember times I used to throw tantrums. And my mother, my mother just used to take me into the kitchen and she had a thing that's called a wooden spoon. And boys, it was quick. But it's what I needed. But sadly, that attitude grows into church life and adulthood. And if I don't get my way, I throw a tantrum. It's not a sign of spirituality. It's a sign of carnality. And then he says these words, I fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are yet able for you yet carnal. For where there among you there is envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Why do we need the fire of God to fall on our hearts? Because, listen, folks, in every single one of us, we might struggle in some shape or form with what's called carnality. Oh, I feel I'm well chuffed myself this week because I've been, I've prayed every morning and I've read my Bible every day and I've been to all the meetings at church and, boys, I'm by a great fella. Godliness does not bring pride. Godliness brings humility. Brings humility. I'm saying to you, secondly, that fire not just does it consume, but fire also, it, it purifies. Because not just as a consume thing, but it purifies that which is there already. The Bible talks about our faith being much more precious than that of gold. Even through the trials of our faith, God uses things. So that he might refine that which is within us, that we might become a more godly people, a more Christ-like people. What are you goal, what's your goal for 2024? Because if it's only to be seen for what you do in St. Field Baptist Church and your activity... You read in the church in, in Revelation, there were a church there and they were full of activity. And they had this name, but boy, they were, they were a great bunch of people. But their hearts were far from God. I'm going to say lastly, folks, because our time is truly gone. Not just was this the place where the fire of God fell, not just was this the place where the altar had to be rebuilt and this was the place in Mount Carmel where Israel had to make a choice but this was the place where the enemies of God had to be destroyed because it says in verse 40 then Elijah said take the prophets of Baal and let not one of them escape and they brought them to the brook Kishon and slew them there 450 men these false prophets died that day because these evil men did that which endeavor to deceive the people of God and take them away from God. Now, the word of God does not exhort you or me to go out and commit the crime of murder by any means. But in a spiritual sense, the word of God teaches us that there's someone that we have to put to death every day. And that is me. I and me. The old theologian of an older generation talked about a word and it was called mortify. 
we don't really hear much about mortifying now. It's not a word that we use in our, Engli- in our present English language, but it simply means about putting to death. And you always know when the old man is still alive because, now let me put it to you in a very personal illustration. I, bought a, I had to do a wedding about three years ago and I bought myself a very nice pair of shoes. Now, you might stand on them once <laughs> and you might attempt to stand on them a second time, but if you stand on them a third time on purpose, be you assured my old man might come alive very quickly. I'm not mortifying. But something that is dead does not respond. The Bible says when he, that's our Savior, was revealed, he revealed not again. Now he's our example. Tell me today. These are just very simple lessons from the life of Elijah. They're not complicated. I wouldn't class myself as a complicated sort of a person. But just simple biblical truths. Now we've started a new year. What way, what course, whenever you set your seal for 2024, what wind do you want to catch? You can either just keep going the way you're going, and if you're spared to 2025, maybe you'll sit in the service this time next year, and maybe some other preacher, maybe that time you might have your own pastor, and he make it up, and he maybe endeavor to give to you a, a word to try and get you into uh, refire, refire us up again in 2025. But the reality is, folks, unless we are willing to make a change in our personal lives, there's not going to be a change. I have to make a difference. I have to make adjustments. I've got his word. I don't need any more truth now. God has word. It gives me direction. It gives me instruction. It's there to feed me. It's there to help me. Then God says, now, it's up to you now. It's up to you. What you're going to do about the word that you've heard. Let's bow for a short word of prayer. Father, we ask this morning that you would just encourage and help us as we gather in your house. We're thankful, Lord, for the truth of your word, and we thank you that it's not complicated. Uh, We thank you that it's something that all of us can, uh, in some way, Lord, apply to our lives along the journey of life. Now, Lord, we'll be the first to acknowledge, Lord, that we have failed you in many of these areas in our lives. And we don't by any means come today to be trying to be arrogant or proud or thinking, Lord, well, I have made it. For, Lord, you know we haven't made it. And we are struggling, Lord. Some of us, Lord, are struggling big time. Some of us have neglected our altars. And the stones are broke away, fallen away. And we know, Lord, we're going to have to make some ter- drastic changes and get things back in order that we might walk the way with you the way we ought to walk. We pray, Lord, that today 
that this would be a turning point in somebody's life or in many lives and even for the work here at Sinfield. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 418 is our closing hymn. It's in the hymn book and it'll be coming up on your screen. And uh, we're going to make this our closing hymn. Let me see. All the way my Saviour leads me, what have I to ask beside? Let's just sing together verses 2 and 3 only of this lovely hymn. Uh, for the sake of time, verses 2 and 3 of 418, please. Thank you. <laughs>